0: Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands, as I learn your righteous regulations. I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Thank you, Bethany. Okay, um, I think I say this every time. Uh, Amber, I'm going to try to run the slides. If I can't run the slides, I'll let you know. Um, Again, I feel like I just quickly should just say one more time, my name is Chaz. We're really glad that you're here, um, that you joined us. I don't normally do this. Uh, but when I do, um, I, I try to make it so that it's not too much of a change of pace. Um, I didn't write that down. I just came up with that just now, off the off the cuff. Um, but all of that to say, um, I'm always really delighted when I get to um, serve and um, share in God's word in this way, and so hopefully it won't be too painful. Um, Today, I actually want to talk to you all about becoming gods. That is, I want to look at what the Bible says, particularly at this narrative that we've been looking at in the Exodus story. I want to talk about what the Bible says about you and I each becoming gods and how this ought to shape our identity. This one fundamental fact about you and I and all those who are caught up in this Jesus story is that we are creatures who have the potential to become gods. And this is crucial for our identity and how we understand ourselves. And so already I can see on, I saw on some of your faces, you're really freaked out. Um, what is this new age hocus pocus that Chaz has gotten into? What kind of reading of scripture are we going to have to hear today? But um, just hang with me. Hopefully it will make sense by the time we're through. Um, there will be a kind of like a punch line in a little bit, so... Um, when we get there, I'll let you know. Um, so, for those of you that haven't been with us, which is actually quite a bit of you, um, even if you're a regular, you know, family member here at Christ City Church, it is summertime, and so people are kind of in and out, and so you may not have been here the last couple of weeks as we've been in the Ten Commandments. And so, I'd like to just kind of briefly tell you where we've been and kind of what we're up to. Um, first, a disclaimer. We did start a Ten Commandments series at the beginning of June. And it in no way is connected to like, current legislation in the Texas Senate about Ten Commandments being displayed publicly. Although today might speak into that a bit. Um, but we have been looking at the Ten Commandments. And um, I've been asked about the logo that we made that you see here for the, for the series, keeping it simple, loving God and loving others. And in some ways, it's supposed to kind of communicate a couple of things um, on the one hand, it kind of reminiscent of uh, what's known as a Rutherford diagram or a Bohr Rutherford model. Um, if Kyler was here, he would be able to explain it all to us. but it's basically the, the atom symbol that you, you associate with like physics or chemistry of like electrons circling right? because in some way the Ten Commandments are they're somehow fundamental to the people of God. and another thing that it's been um, associated with or Um, someone's asked me about, is they said, oh, it looks kind of like the Enneagram symbol. And yeah, it does kind of look like an Enneagram symbol, because, again, it's something that's so fundamental that the Ten Commandments actually have something to do with who we are as a people. Um, Our personality, something about our identity, right? And so we've been looking at the Ten Commandments over the last couple weeks, and we've basically just tried to say again and again and again that it comes at a very important place in the story. Where God gives the law to the Israelites on the top of Mount Sinai is after they have been rescued. It is after they have been redeemed, and it is after they have been liberated from slavery. And we really just can't say that enough. And so as we continue to look at the Ten Commandments, continue to meditate on what they might mean for us, just to keep that in front of us, there's nothing meritorious. We don't earn God's favor. We don't earn his love by keeping the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's quite the opposite, and the Lord invites us into a way of life on the other side of salvation. That's weird. This never happened before. So, um, yeah, on the other side of salvation. N.T. Wright, a kind of famous biblical scholar that many of you have probably heard of, he actually describes the Exodus story this way. He says, Exodus is really the story of two liberations. The first is to get Israel out of slavery. And the second is to get slavery out of Israel. And I think if we each kind of take stock of our own stories, we actually that probably sounds kind of familiar to us. Uh, My guess is many of us have been freed from something, have felt the liberating power of God's call on our life, of the saving work of Jesus, only to find ourselves tugged back in to some form of slavery at some point later. Whether it be a legalistic religious performance, perhaps, or the irreligious, immoral squandering of all that we've been given, true freedom is rather hard for us to accept. It's hard to keep, and it's hard to submit to. It calls to mind, if you remember, the story of the two brothers that Jesus tells. The first brother struggled to remain free and just squandered all that he had been given. The older brother, however, also struggled to remain free in that story. He couldn't let go of his performative relationship with his father. And so in both cases, both the younger and the older brother struggled to accept the conditions of life with God and life with others. And so what we've said over the last couple weeks is that true freedom, which is what God is trying to bring the Israelites into in this Exodus story, particularly in Exodus 20 where he gives them the Ten Commandments. True freedom is really about becoming who you are. It's about living within the bounds of your existence, and it is creative, vital, and abundant. Precisely because it submits to the reality and um, uh, of the claims of love and of liberty. It does not find these boundaries of reality and relationship burdensome. And this is true freedom. And this is really what the Ten Commandments, or what we've been calling the Ten Words, are about. And so in a way, the last two weeks, as we looked at the First Commandment and the Second Commandment, um, have actually been kind of building up to this week, in a way. Um, At least in my mind, it has been. Um, This third word kind of begins to bridge the gap between what we might call like the kind of God-centric... Commands of the first, second commands, um, what we might call our worship, religious, devotional or spiritual life. and it begins to move us into that practical domain of human relationships and the day-to-day responsibilities of life with God and life with others. And so as has been our custom over the last couple of weeks, we've been using this threefold framework to look at the Ten Commandments, the 10 words. And we've, each week we've looked at them under the reality, the relationship, and the role. And so we'll continue to do this today. By the way, um, this is probably the last time we'll use these three headings. Um, we won't consider them all this way. But because these first three commandments really do form kind of a unit in some way, um, I think it's, it's helpful for us, and it has been helpful up to now, to kind of think about them um, similarly in some way. And so hopefully that'll kind of make sense later. So the reality of this third word, first heading. We'll begin with what the third commandment is not about. So the third commandment is not about, you may have heard this. I was told this when I was growing up. It's not about cussing or using the name of God as a curse word or something. Um, And it's not about swearing oaths to God. You may have heard people say, you know, you can't swear to God. That's breaking the third commandment. It's taking his name in vain. <clears throat> but yet, we should also say the third commandment is um, not less than these things, because the 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 way we talk, the way in which we speak, um, is certainly included in the third commandment's meaning. And by the way, I should have—I I feel like I may have uh, skipped over this part. But the third commandment is. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, right? I just want to make sure everybody's on board with that. But, in in fact, um, nowhere in the original language is it saying really anything about the way in which we talk. It's not a speech act per se. Now, speech and how we talk definitely matters. As Jesus will tell us later, this has already come up um, for us in this series, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what we say how we talk, the way in which we speak of God, speak about God, will certainly tell us something about that which dwells within our heart. In other words, it will indicate how we find ourselves relating to God. And this um, will move us closer to what the third word is really all about. So I said before at the beginning and scared some of you that I wanted to talk about becoming gods and our identity. And so, as I'm sure maybe a few of you were kind of worried, maybe not, but um, a few of your faces made me think that maybe you were a little confused, and that's okay. But as I said, there was a punchline coming, and kind of here it is. It's not about us becoming gods, little g, plural. It's about us becoming gods, big G, apostrophe, possessive. That's really what this third commandment is pointing to. And so, if you think about it, the, the difference the thing that makes all the difference in the world between those two ways of hearing this sentence, becoming gods, is just a small little thing called an apostrophe. You know, it's a small mark, but it's an important one. It makes all the difference. And what does an apostrophe do? Yes, it shows possession. It shows us whose we are. And so this little mark, can really change the way in which we experience the world, it can change the way in which we experience ourselves, and it can certainly change the way in which we experience God. And in fact, these little marks, we'll just, we'll roll with that for a minute, they're actually tend to be kind of important in scripture even. If you think as early as like Genesis 4 and 5, Cain kills his brother, and what does God do? He marks him. He marks Cain, but it's actually a grace. It's to keep Cain from being killed. So God marks Cain, sets him apart as somehow different, and protects him as a mercy. If you think about it later in Genesis story, God gives Abraham this mark that we call circumcision. It's a way of setting him out. It's a way of uh, marking out Abraham and his family line as somehow different. And then just after the Ten Commandments are given, later in Exodus, where um, God is giving the instructions for the tabernacle, and he's kind of commissioning the, the priests and telling them all about you know, the ceremonies and the things that they will do during ritual celebrations, he tells them this. He says, make a plate of pure gold, engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And there, all caps, Lord, that is the divine name. That is Yahweh the God who reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, the God who reveals himself to the people of Israel on the top of Mount Sinai, and the same God that says, don't take this name in vain. And he says, put it on the turban, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And then, not to get too weird, um, but I couldn't help myself, um, if we go all the way to Revelation, marks become important again. Again, um, I'm not here to say anything about what this might mean or how we might interpret it. But the point is that in Revelation, marks actually distinguish those who are in the family of God, who have been called out as his people, and those who do not. This mark causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless they have the mark, and that is the name of the beast, the mark of the beast. By contrast, those that are of God's, who belong to him, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Again, not to say anything about the symbolism or what this might mean or how we interpret it today, The point is simply that in Revelation, what we're told is that God marks out those, calls out, sets apart, sanctifies those that belong to him. That's what these markings do. They show possession. And so when we come to the third command, the third word, and the Lord says, do not take my name in vain, what it really means is Do not bear this name, do not take it upon yourself, do not wear it or lift it up, do not present it to others in a way that is not fitting or consistent with who I have shown myself to be, because you are marked. Now, of course, in our time, in Jesus's um, family, we don't necessarily bear a visible mark to the world, but as we're told, there is a circumcision of the heart. We are marked, we are called out. And this is the reality of the third word, that the Israelites now belong to God. They are marked by him as his people, chosen by him. And of course, the same is true of you and me and all those who call on the name of Jesus. Likewise, his name is now written on us. His name is stamped on us. And this third word kind of urges us, invites us, challenges us even, to live accordingly. And so, next um, heading, the ten words, relationship, keep going. What would it look like to not bear the Lord's name in vain? What would it look like to take the Lord's name upon ourselves, written on our life, our heart, our choices, our actions, what would it look like for that not to be done in a way that is vain or meaningless or empty or to no purpose? I think we can actually begin to get a picture of what this might look like or how this might relate to us um, if we just consider how the Lord actually reveals himself to his people, particularly a story that comes right before he gives the Ten Commandments on on Mount Sinai, and this comes in Exodus chapter 19 don't necessarily have to turn there. Um, it's a brief passage I'd like to read for us. But if you recall, just before the Lord gives the ten words or the ten commandments, in chapter 19, on the, we read this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Skipping down a few verses... The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. I think we have a slide for this. Yes. You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so here, God tells the people that he has chosen them, he has saved them, and he has kind of called them into something bigger, given them a purpose. And what these are, are... I mean, ultimately, they're identity statements. God is telling the people of Israel, this is who you are now. And this is who you belong to. You are a treasured possession. And so, in one sense, God is saying, there's nothing left for you to do. I have chosen you. I treasure you. And so, just accept my grace, my mercy, my compassion. You can rest now. But on the other hand, he says you are now a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so in some way, you are now set apart as righteous, as sanctified. There is, in a sense, some work for you to do. You have a job description. Evangelistic, missional, if you'd like. Those are words we use nowadays. But in the end, it is actually both of these kind of identity statements that are now inscribed on the people of Israel. And we, uh, you and I likewise, take up both of these realities when we take the name of the Lord. That is, to be marked as belonging to God, to bear his name, comes with a certain responsibility and a certain reward. If you remember what God told Abraham in Genesis after telling him he will Bless him, and he will be the father of many nations. He says, Abraham, I have blessed you. But it doesn't stop there. God says, I have blessed you to be a blessing. And so reward and responsibility. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests. So as a, maybe a kind of a counter example, um, and a few of you will, will be familiar with this, um, what, just as a way to kind of illustrate what it might mean to take the Lord's name in vain. Um, there's this weird phenomenon that I found out about a couple years ago. Chris and I actually talked about it, but um, as I was preparing this week, I was just constantly reminded of, is anybody, have you heard of this thing called false valor? Anybody know what this is? So false valor is basically where people, um, for whatever reason, um, dress up like military members um, whether veterans or active duty so like they find a costume dress up in like full dress blues or maybe they're fatigues um, but they just dress as if they're in the military and pretend to be in the military in order to get all the like perks of being in the military so like I guess discounts at certain places probably special treatment on airlines or something I mean just I mean the respect like the dignity that goes with being someone who has, done this thing, sacrificed part of your life for the sake of others, and so people will actually pretend to do this. Um, and as you might guess, like in the military community, it is a pretty grievous infraction to do this. and I think most of us would say, yeah that's, that's really not okay as another like way of thinking about this alternatively in a much like uh, lighter or you know less serious example, um, I just I, I couldn't also help but thinking like you ever been or maybe you currently do this um, yeah I think Amber has one on her uh, car now that I think about it um, but like a Christian bumper sticker so you're thinking you know you've got the Christian bumper sticker you're marked like you're telling the world this is who I belong to and then you like cut someone off and drive real aggressively and you know just aren't courteous at all or I mean, these are silly examples, but they're just they're too on the nose. Like, this is kind of what we're trying to talk about. Christian t-shirts, you know, you walk around, you've got it all over you, and then, you know, you're a total jerk to the people at the grocery store or something. And it's just like, hmm, what, what message is this communicating? That's kind of the, like, the, the, the contrast to this third command. Because the command is to not only take the name and thus the Lord serious, But it is to bear it in one's life as something which makes a difference, as something which changes the way in which we live and the way we relate to God and to others. The third word guards us against a kind of flippancy or triteness or maybe what we might think of as like a casual fair-weather fandom of nominal and cultural Christianity, which produces no noticeable change in the life of those who speak and bear the name of God. In other words, the Lord expects his name as it is carried out into the world, written on our hearts, on our lives, as those who claim to be one of his, the Lord expects it to not be vain or empty or meaningless. His name, his reality, it will not be co-opted. It will not be reduced to a prop in a presidential photo shoot or sentimentalized to argue for a morality that does not accord with his character. Not to make a political point, but the reality is is that I'm sure each of us know people or can think of examples in our personal life or even in public life um, on either side of the political aisle that seem like they take the name of the Lord somewhere else, projecting and insisting that God is something or someone other than the God we meet in scripture. So third heading now, what is the role of this third word? First, as I've already said a few times, the third word tells us who we are by telling us whose we are. There's something about this third command to not take the name of the Lord in vain that tells us who we belong to and thus gives us an identity. So another kind of silly example of this is so this is from Toy Story. You all know this. Everybody's seen this movie. If you haven't seen this movie, you're like Holly and haven't seen the Ten Commandments, and that would just be kind of strange. Or wait, like most of you who haven't seen the Ten Commandments, I should say. Um, but this is from Toy Story. This is just another way of thinking about this. If you recall the movie, Andy, they're, that's who they belong to. And everything they do in the movie is, is really, not necessarily explicitly, but it has to do with this little boy. It has to do with getting back to him, remaining in his care, belonging to him. It gives them their identity, and it shapes their purpose. And so the third word tells us this, who we are and whose we are. Because it is through our relationship to God, with this God, that we have come to know in this story of Exodus, that we have come to know in the saving work of Jesus Christ, It is in our relationship with this God that we come to know who we are. And so the ten words are spoken to help shape our identity. To tell us whose we are so that we might know who we are. And in fact, if you think about it, this is actually paralleled in the story of Moses that takes up the first, I don't know, four or five chapters of Exodus. Because the Exodus narrative is really all about identity in a lot of ways. If you think about it, Moses, um, uh, I'll just try to recount it for you, is saved from uh, Pharaoh as a child because he was going to kill all the firstborn Israelites. And so just like the plague that the Israelites escaped from, and then Moses is put in a river, and then he is brought out of the water and saved from Pharaoh in the same way that the Israelites are saved from Pharaoh, and then pass through the water. Moses also has a wilderness journey of his own, where he kind of is not sure where to go, who he is, what he should do. And he kind of wanders around in the wilderness for a little bit. So do the Israelites on the other side of their liberation. Moses has this mountaintop, burning bush experience with God, where he is spoken to out of the fire. God reveals himself to him, shares himself with him, tells him his name just like the Israelites, who on the top of a mountain are spoken to out of the fire as God reveals himself to a people. All of which they didn't earn or merit, God simply chooses them. A treasured possession and a holy nation. And so the Exodus narrative, in a way, from beginning to end, in a certain sense, is about shaping a people, telling them who they are, giving them a certain identity, and these ten commandments are caught up in that same process, and they are a part of that. And the same, of course, is true for you and I. As Peter will tell Christian believers much later, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, we actually become more of who we are, more of ourselves, more of who we were created to be when we accept our place in this story, when we accept the name that is written on us and live into that, counter to our kind of expressive individualism where we would never want someone else's name on us. We would want to self-invent, self-create. The Bible teaches us something not opposite, but just different in that It is when we submit to the reality of God with us and God for us that we actually become more who we are meant to be. And interestingly, Peter says that we ought to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so for many of us, this language um, ought to sound rather familiar to us because for a long time, one of our kind of logos or mantras around here has been to proclaim Christ in our everyday roles and relationships. And the third word in many ways is very similar to this. That is to display his name and his character to those around us. So secondly, the role of the third word is to keep before us just this simple yet profound truth that in many ways the world is watching. And the way that we live matters, and how it reflects, um, and it reflects the way in which people come to understand and experience God. This isn't to overstate the fact or to act as if um, God can't still work in our mess and the ways in which we often fail to represent Him correctly. I'm sure every one of us likely has a story of our own of how other Christians, oftentimes sincere and well meaning, have somehow negatively influenced our view of God. Maybe have left us with wounds that we've had to work through, or confusions that we've had to correct at some point. And this happens precisely because somewhere, somehow, we've been exposed or encountered people that have misrepresented God to us. That is, they represented God in a way that was not consistent with who he actually reveals himself to be. We could use even stronger language. They became, for us, a false emissary, an untrustworthy witness, as Paul would say, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And So, in many ways, this third word, this third commandment, reminds us that you and I are just as easily can just as easily misrepresent the Lord. That is, to take his name in vain, leave it empty and meaningless. If you remember, um, we said this a couple weeks ago, but really the Ten Commandments is meant to tell us something about who God is, who this God that we belong to is, what he values. And so if we're not sure what it might look like to bear the Lord's name faithfully, to do it in a way that is not vain but is purposeful and meaningful, we really just don't have to look much further than the Ten Commandments that he gives them here. For example, God values life, so do not murder. God values love and respect and trustworthiness and keeping your promises, so do not commit adultery. He values truth, so do not lie. He is committed to your good and your flourishing. So learn to work and rest according to the kind of being that you are. God honors and values persons. So honor and value those who care for you. Respect their work, energy, and resources because God cares for your neighbor. I mean, we could go down the list. I guess we just did, but. And of course, as Christians, we each have the luxury of just thinking about the life of Jesus, who, as we know, kept the commandments perfectly. And yet sometimes, I think many of us, myself included, speak of God or speak to God or live in such a way um, that doesn't necessarily reflect the personal God that we have come to know, who has redeemed and rescued. Many times we just live and reflect or um, somehow manifest just a generic, anonymous God, a nameless God, a God who stands kind of far off, unknown, and aloof. But does this sound like the God of the Bible? Is this the God that's made known in the Exodus story? Is this the God made known in the Christ event, the Word made flesh, the suffering servant, crucified Savior, so the, word, the third commandment, the third word, reminds us that our life is meant to reflect not some abstract, theoretical God, but this God who reveals himself in these ten words, who reveals himself in a burning bush and in the fire on top of Mount Sinai, the God who rescues and redeems and restores, the God who delivers us from slavery, the God that each of us, if we have, at any point accepted and taken this name on ourselves, on our life, this God who has emptied himself to become one of us, the God-man Jesus who came not to be served but to serve, who conquers the idols of this world and the idols of our hearts by giving himself away as a sacrifice of love. So the question for us as we reflect on the third command this afternoon is simply this does our life reflect this name, this God? You and I belong to God. We are chosen as his people, and in Jesus, we know he is with us. We live our lives before God, marked as his. In all that we do, in all that we say, the kinds of people that we are becoming, the motivations and desires of our hearts, all of this bears God's name. And thus is it always done, not just in relation to ourselves, not just in relation to one another, but it's also caught up and bounded in this relationship that we have with God in Jesus. So on the night before he was crucified, Jesus actually prays just this for us. He asks the Lord that we would take the Lord's name, not in vain, but in truth and in love. In John chapter 17, what's known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I am praying for them, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so these first three commandments, as we've kind of seen over the last couple of weeks, can be kind of taken together and form their own kind of distinct portion of the Ten Commandments. And they really do kind of set the table for us for everything that comes after. Ultimately, we realize this is the reality and the relationship and the role of these first commandments. The reality that God is God and there is none other than Him. That our relationship to Him is personal and therefore cannot be objectified or stilted through static images but must remain living and active Jesus is alive, so we must stay attentive to his voice and his word. And our role, simply, not easily though, is to simply steward and honor and carry this name into the world as God's chosen people, as those who proclaim him in the everyday, in our everyday roles and relationships until he cannot be ignored. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for letting us be a part of all that you would do and um, all that you have called us into. Lord, we thank you that we are a chosen people. We thank you that you've invited us not only into your family, but into your work. Lord, may we not... um, Yeah, maybe I just said things too strongly, perhaps, this afternoon, Lord, and so I pray um, that we would never, um, Lord, misunderstand or confuse um, how you present yourself and how you work in the world versus the ways in which we participate in that. But Lord, I do pray that each of us would take seriously the responsibility of being your people and the ways in which we share and demonstrate um, who you are and share your character and your reality and your presence with others. Lord, give us grace in the meantime as we grow up and mature, just like the Israelites, as we learn um, what it means to bear your name in the world. May we do it in accordance with who you have shown us to be, that each of us might Look into our own story and be reminded of just who you are, how you've dealt with us, the ways in which you have been gracious and compassionate and kind, but also the ways in which you have encouraged and convicted and challenged us and caused us maybe to rethink the way we live, the decisions we make, the values we hold. Lord, we thank you that even in calling us into something more, calling us into something different, Lord, In your patience, you continue to remain steadfast in your commitment to our good, even in our stumbling and in our groaning. And so, Lord, we thank you that we are yours, that we belong to you. pray that we would live as those who treasure you in the same way that you treasure us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to invite Sam back up now. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, Paul writes, he took some bread. When he had broken it, this is, When he had given thanks and when he had broken the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And afterward, he said, this is my blood. It is a new covenant. As often as you drink of it, you do it in remembrance of me. And the Lord said, for as often as you eat and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so let each person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so kind of in the spirit of this third commandment, to not take the Lord's name in vain, to not bear it up to no purpose. I thought we would just be reminded of how Paul exhorts us to do something quite similar in how we receive the Lord's Supper. And so as is our custom, we often make time for reflection at the end of our Sunday messages. And so again, just kind of in the spirit of that challenge or that charge, let each person examine themselves and then eat the bread and drink of the cup. Take about three minutes. There'll be some questions for reflection. We'll just have about three or four minutes of silence. And you're welcome to just work through these questions, pray silently there. Um, It's just conversation between you and God, examining yourself. And then as you feel led, after you feel like you've had sufficient um, time to reflect, You're welcome to make your way down to the front and grab the communion elements. Um, Sam will be playing underneath for us. Um, But then don't actually receive them uh, just yet. Um, And then uh, afterwards, we'll come back together and uh, receive communion together corporately. Um, Hopefully that makes sense. Those of you that know what to do, take the lead. About three minutes of silence.